Good morning, fellowship. Happy 21. I haven't seen you guys in a while. You know, I heard a rumor that 2021 set a New Year's resolution to be better than its predecessor, and it hasn't kept it really well so far. But uh, it is good to be together. You know, I was reminded of that this week, of uh, what we're doing here really, really matters. In fact, I I was thinking deeper about what it means for us to gather together and worship Jesus in in the midst of, of, you know, just where we are. And, And I thought about this. I thought, you know, here we are coming together under the authority of Jesus Christ and the authority of God's word. And when we engage that power, there's a sense that there is no greater force in all the planet We have an opportunity um, to proclaim by gathering, by singing these songs that we've been doing, by by listening to God's word taught, which is what we're about to do, that the hope for our world is in the transformative power of the living word of God, which is alive and well and always will be. And so I am so glad that we're in the Sermon of the Mount as uh, we're in this season of our lives here. And if you would go ahead and open your Bible to the sermon Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We are now in Matthew chapter 6. Lloyd began that last week, and it's a section of the sermon that we're going to be continuing today. Um, I want to set it up just for a few minutes, and then we'll get to our actual text. You know, it's easy to kind of lose sight of what it means to be a Christian. I think sometimes there's a lot of confusion around what what does it mean to actually be a Christian. And I just want to remind us, as the sermon has been doing over and over again, as we've been looking at it, to be a Christian means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, you know, these 12 men that followed Jesus around and they were accompanied by other men and women as well. They were followers of Jesus. Here's what that meant. They patterned their lives off of their master. What he taught, they obeyed. What he said, they believed. What he did, they did. Like they copied him. They patterned his life off of him. And and that's what our faith comes down to. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're followers of Jesus. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus unveiled this whole new way of being human. I think it's nothing, nothing less than that. And through the sermon, he says, let me show you a way of living that will seem upside down. It'll seem backwards. It won't even seem life giving, but it is actually the way. It is the path toward fullness. It is the path toward flourishing. And of course, Jesus didn't just teach it. He lived it. And if you think about Jesus' life, I mean, it was kind of a downward trajectory if you think about it. He started with a whole lot of crowds. And then the more he said things that they didn't like, the more abandoned him. And and by the end, when he was hanging on the cross, it was literally just his mother and his best friend, John. And so as we follow Jesus, we understand that we're called to a path of life, with, which is a path of, of, of self-giving. It is a path of death, so to speak. And, and our faith is stretched to believe. Do you mean that the path of death could actually be the path of life? That there's this resurrection explosiveness on the other side of this path of following Jesus? And what God's word would tell us is that's exactly how it works. So the Sermon on the Mount is hard Right? You're not going to read the sermon and be like, oh, this is like the path toward wealth and prosperity and happiness on this earth. You're going to read the sermon and be like, ay, 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 this sounds backwards. Am I going to believe it or not? Am I going to follow it or not? And I think the answer to that question is, what do you believe to be true about Jesus? Is, if he is who he said he is, I'm in. I'm in. I hope you are as well. 
Lloyd said this last week when he started this particular part of the sermon that we're on, which is um, Matthew 6, 1 to 18, is a section of the, the sermon. It's a unit that we just started last week. Lloyd summed up the sermon by saying, the Sermon on the Mount runs on two rails, the kingdom of God and the heart of man. I thought that was really helpful. These two rails are un- inseparable. Together they explain why Jesus came and why you and I are here. Kingdom of God, the heart of Man, And so to that end, a key verse of the sermon that I want to take us back to, not in today's text, is chapter 5, verse 20. We'll put that on the screen. If you understand this verse, it's going to help you understand what we're going to get into today. So here's what Jesus says in 5, verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, think about the two rails, the kingdom of God, also known as the kingdom of heaven. They're used synonymously. And the heart of man. Here's what Jesus is saying. If your righteousness is only skin deep, if it doesn't penetrate down into your core being, which is the heart then you have no part of the kingdom of God. Another way to think about this is you were made for the kingdom of God, but to live as a kingdom person, your life has to be about much more than surface level goodness, which by the way, is all most people know about and care about. So we've been using this illustration of the iceberg you know, and, and the idea is, is that, you know, the, the, the religious people of Jesus' day, which were the, the teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, you know, the, the, all the people that were looked up to from a religious context, um, they were all about the, what's up on the top. It's the part that could be seen, the external stuff, looking good, the visible part, external behavior. For Jesus, though, he's saying righteousness is about the whole. It's about the whole person. It's not just the 10% you see on the top. It's the whole thing, including and especially the parts of you that no one can see. That bottom below the waterline part of you is the part where Jesus wants to engage because that's the part of you that's most fractured and fragmented and broken. And I thought, you know, what a, what a good image this is in Williamson County, Tennessee, where, you know, a lot of us, on the surface, life seems to be going pretty well. I mean, sometimes we encounter people that are very, you know, vis- visibly fragmented, visibly broken, you know, visibly struggling. But oftentimes we're encountering people that just look, look like life's pretty good, but there's a lot more going on below the surface. And, and I think that's true for most people you and I encounter. And so we're in this unit or section in the sermon where Jesus is applying the iceberg to the religious practices of his day, specifically giving, Lloyd covered last week, prayer, we'll cover this today and, and Lloyd next week as well, two weeks on prayer. And then the third, we'll get into fasting. Giving, prayer, fasting. Those were not just three random things. Those were like pillars of Jewish righteousness. Like that's how people knew if you were a good Jew in the first century. You know, well, do they, do they, they give their alms to the poor? Do they pray? Do they fast? You know, th- this was this external idea of good Jewish behavior. Now, chapter six, verse one, you know, the next verse that I'll put on the screen here um, is the thesis statement for the whole section. So think about, you know, good essay writing. You write your thesis and then you have your three points and then you summarize what you just said. If you remember that from middle school, high school, and, and maybe some of you are right there in the middle of this. Welcome back to school, right? 
This is exactly what Jesus does. So the first verse of the chapter, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's the big idea of the section. That's the thesis. And then he's gonna say, here's what that look, could look like in your giving if you're not careful. That was Lloyd's message last week. Today, it's here's what that could look like in your prayer if you're not careful. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll get to what it could look like to fast for the sake of other people rather than God. Now, our text is verses five and six, which is the prayer part or the beginning of the prayer part. So let me read it to you and then we'll dig into it and unpack it. When you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, that's the thought. That's the idea. Um, There's actually some very clear parallelism in these two verses. The way that Jesus is building this argument is really interesting. And I'm I'm gonna diagram it for you so you can kind of see this. And I think it'll help us understand it. So there's a phrase up top in when you pray in verse five. And then look down at verse six. You have almost the exact same phrase again, but when you pray. Okay, so, so he's mentioning that twice. And then there's some more parallelism. Jesus goes in the first verse, verse five, to say what you must not be like when you pray. So that's this part. You must not, whoops, there you go. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue. Let's see, I'll just outline it this way. Street corners that they may be seen by others. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll uh, put a box around that in blue. In the corresponding part in verse six is a contrast you, instead of being like the hypocrites, you should go in your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. So you see some parallelism there. Don't be like this, rather be like that. So those two sections match up. And then there's a third section as well. It's a reward section, which is interesting. Truly I say to you, they, the hypocrites, have received their reward. And then down in verse six, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So red kind of matches up with red, blue with blue, gold with gold. So you see kind of how the passage works structurally. Now, uh, I'm going to talk about this verse for a while, and and I'm going to remove the clutter just so we can kind of look at the words again. But I I wanted you to see kind of how it diagrams out. When Jesus is describing these hypocrites, they, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, the street corners. He's not just using hyperbole. You know, he's not just sort of like saying like, can you imagine if they, someone just loved to do this? This was literally happening. Let me explain how their culture worked. Good Jews in the first century would pray three times a day when they woke up in the morning, midday around 3 p.m., which was the time of sacrifice, and in the evening time before they would go to bed. Now, what was happening in that day, that certain Jews would schedule their afternoon prayer. They happened to be in the busy places of town when it came to be time for prayer. So the idea was wherever you were, you were to stop and pray. But these people would just happen to be on the busiest street corner of town. They just happened to be in the synagogue, which, by the way, was, was not just a place of, of weekend worship. The synagogue was like the community center 
of the city or the town. So these people were purposely choosing the most traveled, most crowded, most public places. Oh, you know, oh, it's prayer time. Let me get out my prayer beads and do all these things. This is what was happening at this time. Now, it seems so maybe distant from us, but there's definitely a clear uh, application. But let me ask you, these folks that were praying on the street corners very ostentatiously and, and in the synagogue and, and their goal is to be seen, who's the audience of their prayer? Like real question for those of you in the room, just shout out. Who's the audience of the prayer in this context? Other people. Yeah, that's exactly right. Other people. How ironic. How distorted when the purpose of prayer is conversation with God. So, you know, imagine doing something and like you do something for a purpose and then you never use it for that purpose. You use it for some other distorted purpose. Let me give you an example. Uh, imagine that you decide to cook a gourmet meal this evening for your spouse or your friends. You invite people over, maybe your family, and you slave over this meal. It's delicious. You get like best recipe from Pinterest and all this stuff, and it's just fantastic. And it smells delicious, and you make it, and, it, and right before you serve it, you take a picture of it, post it on your Instagram, and then put it in the trash can. It's like the, the purpose is distorted. The meal was not made for Pinterest or Instagram or whatever. The meal was made to be consumed with people whom you are giving to people whom you are in community with, people whom you love. And Jesus is saying, the purpose of prayer is not for other people to be impressed by you, not for other people to think you're spiritual. You know, Jesus is saying, it looks on the surface that like those people are praying, what's actually going on has little to do with God. So Jesus says they've received their reward. What does that mean? In other words, they've gotten exactly what they wanted, which is for people to notice that they're spiritual. You know, for people to be impressed by their devotion. So here's the idea of verse five, and then we'll get to verse six. Here's the idea of verse five. If you want to pray for the purposes of people thinking you're spiritual, you can do that. And you'll probably get what you want but it's of very little substance. That's your reward. People think you're spiritual. Huh. Good for you. That person really loves God. That person looks like they are really into this Jesus thing. That, that's the reward. And, and that's as deep as it goes. Now, Jesus offers an alternative in verse six. But, you know, there's the word of contrast. When you pray, talking to his disciples. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father, not other people, who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are alone in a room with the door closed and no one else is in there except you and you begin to pray, who's your audience? Of course, yeah, God is your audience and only God, and that's the point of prayer. So having an audience of only one removes all conflict of motivation. Alone in your room in a posture of prayer, you're free to enter into the intimacy of conversation with your creator. Now, Lloyd talked about this last week with giving. I'm going to talk about it briefly this week with prayer. Does this mean that we are to never pray in front of other people, never pray in public? Of course not. Jesus did that very, very frequently. 
So he's not saying there's no context where you should ever pray in public. You know, I hope he's not saying that because, you know, I'm guilty of praying in public all the time. It's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying here is the purpose of prayer is conversation with your father. The best way to do that, at least the best way to practice that, to build your muscle of real prayer is get alone where there's nobody to hear you except God. And it's in that place that you can enter into the presence of God. And by the way, that's what this idea of, of um, your father who is in secret, you know, is that a puzzling phrase? You know, your father who is in secret. What does it mean for God to be in secret? Uh, I like the way the Jerusalem Bible translates it. Listen to this. When you pray, go into your private room, shut yourself in. And so pray to your father who is in that secret place. I think that's the idea of the text. It's not like God exists out there, quote unquote, in secret, you know, this kind of thing. It's, it's when you go in a secret private place, God is in that secret private place with you. That's where you'll find God. In other words, the place where you actually have your attention focused on God is where you'll find him. If you're out on the street corner and you're, you're saying words, but your mind is really on who's hearing around you, and if the words that are coming out of your mouth are good words, if they make sense, etc., are you in God's presence? Well, theologically, yes, but experientially, you're not even conscious of God. Where is God? He's everywhere. But when you enter into a private place, a secret place, you're conscious of his presence. I like the, what Eugene Peterson does with this text, you know, in the message paraphrase. Let me just read you verse six. Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage and the focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. So this is not very confusing, but it is really important. And it is something for us to grab onto. And, and here's how I would put it. The substance of prayer is talking to God. So let's talk to him. Let's direct your attention to him. Let's be with him. That's what Jesus is saying. And, you know, I, people are weird about praying out loud. You know, Jody and I lead a small group and we're always conscious of the fact that, you know, I, I can't just call on some random person to pray because a lot of people don't like praying in front of others. And, and I think there is a value in a use in praying together. And so I think it's something that I want us to grow in comfortability in. But I will admit, especially if you haven't done it a lot, it is hard to pray out loud when other people are hearing you and be really praying to God and not, just for the sake of the people. It is hard. So how do you do it? You practice in your closet where only God can hear you. That's where you're going to learn to pray. You know, and, and honestly, if you can just take those prayers and then just learn to articulate them verbally, just focusing on God's presence, that's how you're going to go grow more comfortable praying in your small group, et cetera. But we get, Jesus is calling us to the core of prayer. Now, okay. I want to apply this in a much broader context than just prayer. Okay. Part of the reason I want to do that is because most of us aren't caught praying on the street corners, you know, or small groups maybe as close as, as we come to that. But if the, the substance here is beyond prayer, which I think it is, then let's talk about the substance of what Jesus is talking about. Let's get to the underlying issue. The underlying issue is the motivation 
behind any religious act. That's the context of this whole section. So last week, what's your motivation for giving? Is it to ring bells and trumpets and whistles and announce to everybody, oh, I'm a big giver? Or you have a different motivation. Now this week, Jesus is like, what's your motivation of prayer? Is it for people to be impressed by you or is it to be with God, talk to God, be intimate with God? Jesus is getting to the core motivation for religion itself. He is, if you might think of it this way, Jesus is pushing into the heart of religion. He's doing the iceberg thing with religion. He's like, there's the religious stuff you see on the outside. People going to church, people giving money, people being, you know, hopefully kind and all these kinds of things. And then there's the real religion, which is in the heart. So I think the best way to see this is to just start applying it to us. Here's the question for me, for you. What's your motivation behind your religion? In other words, what are you trying to accomplish with the spiritual part of your life, with the religious things that you do? And know some of you don't like that, you know, the religious things, it kind of throws you off a little bit. Uh, but let me just give you some examples. You're here today or you're watching online, so you are a churchgoer. Most people would say, oh, that's a religious kind of thing. You know, the world would say, oh, you're religious. Number two, maybe you serve in one of our ministries or maybe you serve somewhere else. So you are a server. I'm guessing you pray at least from time to time. So you are a prayer. Most of you give to our church, to the global offering, maybe to some other Christian organization. So you are a giver. You probably read your Bible you know, at least on occasion, if not regularly. So you are a Bible reader and there may be several other things you do. Maybe you're part of a Bible study. Maybe, you know, maybe you're doing all, who knows what all you're doing. Here's my question. What's your intention underneath all that? What's your motivation under all that? What are you hoping to accomplish? Now, let me just take you down a path a little bit and, and just, just follow me down this path if you're willing to. R religion, as it is typically conceived, it's a combination of beliefs and behaviors that people engage in as a part of their quest for the good life. Now, I know you're feeling, no, no, Rob, that's not why I do these things. I do these things for God and his glory. I do these things for other reasons. It's not about pursuing the good life. And that may be true, but it's not always true for me. The motivation behind most of our religious duties, most of our religious practices is, is usually, if we're honest, to look and feel like a good person. Maybe instinctively, it's just like, I, I want God to be pleased with me. Or, or, you know, maybe you wouldn't think of it this way, but unconsciously, you're, you're trying to earn God's approval. Maybe it's the religious part of your life is the only place where you have a sense of hope and you really desperately need and want a sense of hope. So that's why you do these things. Maybe you're trying to attain eternal life and you know, and you know, and your mind is just like, well, surely I guess eternal life must be in believing in, 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 in doing and being part of the church. And I guess being a Christian, and maybe that's your goal. Maybe your goal is to assuage your guilt or feel better about yourself. Here's what I mean by all this, all right? And, and not all of this is, is completely wrong or off. The default motivation of nearly all religious practices is to better one's life. In other words, to seek a reward. Seek a reward. 
Guys, even in our best altruistic acts, there's often a part of us that's like, I'm a good dude. I feel good about myself. You think anybody saw that? I think my wife knows that I did that, you know? There's just this this self-seeking part of us. Now, here's what I want you to, I want this to just hit you for a minute. Jesus does not completely deconstruct that. He does not say, don't do religious things for the sake of a reward. Did you catch that? He could have said that. He could have said, these guys are doing all these religious things for the sake of reward, not you. I want you to do it for the sheer sake of altruism. That's not where he goes. What he does say is far more brilliant and compelling. Listen to this. If you get this, you'll start to really get this idea. Jesus says, the true reward is none of those things. It's, you, know, you can't earn God's approval. We know that, really. It's not about trying to feel better about yourself or impressing people. It's not assuaging guilt. You know, it's not even about earning eternal life. You cannot earn eternal life. Listen, the true reward is none of those things. The true reward you should be seeking is God himself. It's God for the sake of God. And when I say that, I, I just hope, I mean, I'll just be honest for me. Like when I say this to myself, I'm kind of like, ay, 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 I don't, I don't know how much of me wants God just for God. What you need most, what I need most is found only in God. And not just in things from God, but God himself. Like pursuing God, knowing God, being with God, opening your heart to God, being, being laid bare before him, allowing yourself to be remade by him, desiring that your thirsty soul be satisfied in him, not in the things from him, in him. I might say it like this. A religiously motivated person seeks things from God. A person whose heart is being transformed by Jesus seeks God for God's sake. Because what that person knows is that what they really need is not to feel better about themselves, is not just to assuage their guilt, is not to look better, feel better, not to sort of check the box that I'm a good person or impress my wife or my family. Or, it's none of those things. What you really need is just God. And so Jesus says, when you pray, you know what it's about? It's about God. And so go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now listen, what reward do you get? Listen, what reward do you get from say 10 minutes of, of praying to God in a secret place? 10 minutes of one-on-one time with the creator of the universe. Well, I haven't thought of it that way. Here is essentially what this boils down to is what do you want most? What do I want most? 
Because guys, we know this, right? What you want most is what you will pursue, what you'll seek. And what you seek is typically what you'll find. Lloyd said it really well last week. Start with your motivation, not your obedience. And we get this backwards all the time. And I know, you know, some of you kind of maybe have some objection to that in your minds. Like, no, you should just obey and then you'll start liking it later in, in this kind of thing. But what Jesus is saying here is, is your motivation is, is where the real work needs to be done. So what do you want most? You know, but you're coming to church, you're, you're praying, you're reading your Bible, you're in a group, whatever it is. Good, I'm so happy. What do you want most? Do you want God? Or are you practicing your righteousness for some kind of lesser benefit? And I hope you don't hear this comment like, you know, guilt, 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 guilt. I, it, it's more like th th there, there is a beauty that, that some of us have yet to experience of seeking God just for God, of pursuing him and chasing him and letting it be about him, not about us. And so here's what I want to do. And, and you know, this is, I, I, Lloyd and I try to be as courageously real and honest in our spiritual walk as we can. But for me anyway, this is stretching me, what I'm about to do, okay? It's stretching me. I'll just put that out there. Um, here's what I was thinking about. Rob, to hear the, the Sermon on the Mount is not just to understand it, is to allow the words to penetrate and start disrupting me, okay? And by the way, that's true for you. It's true, true for all of us. To, to hear the words of God, to allow them to penetrate down and do work inside of us. So here's what I've been thinking about. This is personal for me. Uh, the issue of practicing my righteousness before men is um, an occupational hazard of being a pastor. Okay, um, much higher percentage of my prayer and my righteous stuff, my religious stuff, so to speak, it happens in front of you or happens in front of our staff or happens in front of groups that I lead or you know, I'm asked to come and teach and speak and these kinds of things. Now, that doesn't disqualify every prayer I pray or sermon I teach just because other people are hearing it. By no means, as Jesus is saying, it's all about the motivation of your heart, Rob. Let me talk about preaching because this is the hardest one for me. Guys, look, motivations are sneaky, tricky, squishy things. Are they not? I don't know that I've ever had a 100% pure motive in my entire life, right? But I'm growing. I'm growing. The spirit is inside of me, praise God. An important aspect of my job is coming up on this stage and, and reading God's word and teaching God's word for you. That, that's part of what I'm called to do. Now, when my motivation is God's glory and love for you, it is a fulfilling, meaningful, joyful thing that I don't even have words to describe it. But uh, here's my confession. It is so easy for my sermons to be uh, uh, um, doctrinally sound and, and well-constructed, but to be delivered from a heart that cares more what you think of my message than of the message God is speaking to you. So this is what it means for me to pursue the wrong reward. And so what I'm thinking right now is I'm thinking I can come up here on this stage with the goal of preaching a good message that you guys will like and get some attaboys and I have received my reward.
Now, as I've wrestled with this this week, and, and by the way, it's not the first time this thought has occurred to my mind, but I've wrestled with it this week because this is the God, God's word that he's brought us to for right now. I want to tell you, repentance is sweet. Like there, there's a renewed humility in me. There, there's a renewed sense when I came up on this stage this morning of, of, of I think being in a position, Lord willing, with as much humility as I can muster. And here's what God does. He encourages me and he says, Rob, in spite of the inconsistency of your motivations, I still use my word. It does not return void, you see. So I don't have to struggle until I have a pure motivation and then only then can I come up on this stage. There's grace and grace and layers of grace beyond layers of grace. But I wanted to share this with you because I wanted you to, say, I wanted you to know we need to take these words seriously. And to the degree that, that, that you can apply this to you is the degree that you will experience the life-giving power of the word of God working in you right now, in you this week. So that's what the Spirit said to me this week. Doesn't apply to anybody, maybe Lloyd, <laughs> but doesn't apply to many of us. But what is the Spirit saying to you through this text? And here's the question. In what ways are you chasing lesser things than knowing and pursuing God himself? By coming to church this morning, by being a part of a Bible study, by praying, by reading your Bible, you know, in what ways, even, even subtly, even mixed motives, are you chasing lesser things than knowing and pursuing God himself. Because if you can begin to shift motives, you're gonna to start to feel a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're gonna to desire to pray because prayer is when you get to be with God in private, uninterrupted un glory. You're gonna to desire to read God's word because it's in God's word where he speaks to you and he fills you with life and, and creates in you new humility and, and all the beauty and glory that, that the Spirit can do through in us and through us. Once you identify what is not right in your heart, you can humbly bring that to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you're always met with open arms. God responds to humility with grace. Not sometimes. Every time, every time. And so you come to Jesus with the broken parts of your motivations, right? You say, God, I, I have mixed motives at best. And what Jesus says is he says, yes, that is true. And here is my grace for you in that. And let me help you be transformed. Let me begin to do this work. Let me, let me do this because Jesus is saying, I've come not for the righteous, but for sinners. And so guys, if you're willing to understand that that means you, you are one of the blessed ones of God's kingdom. Now, each week of the series, Lloyd and I put a slide up on the end, at the end, where we, we're going to call us to action as a church because we believe the sermon is meant not just to be understood, but to be lived as best as we're able. So, so here's what it is this week. And, and every week it has this same heading, Jesus, show us what it means to follow you. Two things I want to encourage you to do. Schedule time this week to meet with God in a secret place. That literally, like... I love the fact that this text can be literally applied, literally, right now. I mean, when you get home or on Monday or Wednesday or whatever. Go into a room that no one else is. Close the door. Go into your closet. You know, if you've got a walk-in closet that's big enough, you know, whatever. 
And then number two, when you're there in your prayer time, ask God to deepen your desire to be with him this year. What a great prayer for the new year. And guys, listen, why do we ask God that? that Because you cannot conjure desire to be with God. That must come from him. That must come from the spirit that is in you to desire that. Have you ever asked him to God give me the desire to want to be with you? I don't really want to be with you enough. Change the desire of me. Pray that prayer. Ask that. I want to encourage you. So, so go, in, go in your closet. Go in your room. Shut the door. Schedule a time. You know, get your calendar out. Maybe even right now, get your calendar out. Well, I'll hold on second thought. Then you might do it because the person next to you will see you do it. So, <laughs> you know, this get crazy in your mind. But if you can do it with a clear conscience, pull your calendar out right now. Otherwise, do it when you get home. But put it on your calendar because it really matters. And let's live out this text as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, take out the elements of the Lord's Supper. If you're at home, go ahead and grab those. Um, if you've got something that you can use for that, the, the juice and the bread, they are symbols, they are representations of a reality and a truth, but there is deep beauty and meaning in this remembrance. And so let me say this before we eat and drink together. If you think about the way our worship service here at Fellowship is structured, you know, we begin with a call to worship. It's a reminder of why we're here. We are here to worship Jesus Christ. And we sing songs and we pray and the Spirit leads us in that. And then we hear God's Word taught and the Spirit speaks to us through God's Word. And every week, you know what the message is essentially? You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Every week, doesn't matter what text we're in, it's gonna take us to Jesus and it's gonna take us to our need for Jesus. That is it. That is always it. And so we, we come to the table and we don't always do it after the message. Sometimes it's before, but it's, gonna, it's part of our, our worship. When we come to the table, what we're, what we're reminding is I need Jesus. Like I'm, I have a hunger that nothing else can satisfy and I have a thirst that nothing else can quench. And so we come to the table to receive this reminder that our deepest need has been met, that true life is found in Christ alone. And the, the, the bread and the juice that you hold in your hands, they point you to the twin truth that, that on the one hand, your sin is so dark that Jesus had to die for you. And on the other hand, he loved you so much that he did die for you. And so with gladness of heart, let us eat the bread and drink the cup.